It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. It's the best way you can support the program. Well, I mean, short of becoming a patron as well, like uh, Gary and Juanita, Pamela, Stephen, Nancy, Jim and Robbie, Jan, Daryl, Daniel, and Jocelyn and James. They all did this. They became patrons. They get exclusive content uh, like the live streams on Thursdays, plus the bumper stickers, uh, plus, you know, the satisfaction of knowing that uh, that I can afford to purchase this uh, coffee that I'm drinking to help me power through the program. Um, Also want to thank sponsors of the program like Growers Hemp. These are North Carolina farmers that got together and said, you know what, why don't we control the whole process making our hemp product into the commodity into the final product of the full spectrum uh, hemp extract. So CBD products. They have topicals like the balm, the lozenges as well. I use the drops. I prefer the drops, the uh, CBD drops, and you just Put a couple under the tongue and uh, take a few drops before I go to bed and I fall asleep pretty fast and I sleep throughout the night. And if I forget to take some, which occurs every now and again, I can tell because I usually wake up about three in the morning and I can't go back to sleep for like another 15, 20 minutes. That's been the story of my life. My entire life, I've always had problems like that until I started taking the Grower's Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract. Uh, As with all CBD products, here is the official disclaimer. Got to give it to you. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And nothing I've said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. So consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Go to growershemp.com, check out the farmers, read their stories, uh, but also use the promo code PETE at checkout for 20% off. Growershemp.com from North Carolina Farmers to your home. Growers Hemp is about the hemp and not the hype. Joining me now is Chris Cooper. He is the Madison Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Public Affairs at Western Carolina. Uh, Dr. Cooper, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Pete. Thanks for having me on. Good, good. So uh, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff to keep you busy as a uh, political scientist. Do you guys refer to each other as scientists in the in the well, poli sci uh, arena? We do political scientists, rarely mineral scientists, but yeah. usually usually we, we put the, the the political prefix at the beginning of it. Yeah, we do. You walk around like lab coats and such with uh, beakers sure. and Name tags, burners. beakers, exactly. <laughs> Pocket That's protectors. The, the whole deal. That's right. Otherwise, people don't take it seriously. Exactly right. Why would they? All right. So uh, we've got a couple of bills at the state legislative level. Um, about elections. And this is uh, obviously your area of expertise. You crunch a lot of numbers over at Old North State Politics, the blog run by Dr. Michael Bitzer. You don't you don't actually run that, right? He runs that. You just submit stuff. I want to make sure I, I, I don't Bigfoot him or give you credit or don't give you credit. No, no. Like, that's We're his... good. He, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's the founder of it. And uh, we all have very um, special passwords so we can log in and post <laughs> our own things. There you so go. Just, if there's something wrong, it's my fault. If there's something right, uh, give, give bits of credit. He there. deserves it. Uh, and so you wrote most recently 
about Senate Bill 326, and I've covered this uh, pretty extensively, I think, on the show over the last few weeks. Uh, this is the the North Carolina Senate introduced this measure. It does four things, and I will quote to you from your own piece, shall I? Uh, number one, it prohibits the state board of elections and county boards of elections from accepting private monetary donations for certain purposes. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll pause here. You don't go into this part of it. I have uh, examined some of this. This was a this was a reaction to Facebook dumping right. millions of dollars into elections all over America. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you brought that one up. Um, it is about Facebook, and it also affects other folks too. So wherever you fall on the bill, um, uh, a good one to look up might be the Schwarzenegger Institute out in California. Believe it or not, yes, Arnold Schwarzenegger has his own institute. Uh. You never know. <laughs> it's uh, so Hunter Schwarzenegger got into voting rights after he was um, governor, and so he has a center at the University of Southern California. They also give a lot of money to local election boards to to do all sorts of kind of good government, um, expand the vote sorts of measures. And they have, I don't think in North Carolina, but in many other states, they've also given money. So yes, I think it is driven by Facebook, but it's important to note that there are other groups that do this kind of thing as well. Right. And so do you see any concern with with that arrangement uh, with this kind of with these kinds of uh, operations? You know, I mean, it's in, in some ways, it's contracting at its best, right? I mean, if, if we think that we want government to run more efficiently and we think that sometimes contracting out can help us do that, then some of these groups um, can make a lot of sense. And when it's Facebook, yeah, sure, I get as nervous as, as the next person does, <laughs> um, maybe more so. Um, but I think there's also some good government groups that do do a good job and that probably across the aisle we could agree aren't out to, to push a partisan agenda unless you consider you know voting itself to be a partisan agenda. Mm. So um, it, it, we see the same thing in Georgia, um, the, the bill that's been covered you know all over the country and all over the world that just got introduced and passed. That one also has a similar provision. So we're seeing this across the states. That was the Jim Crow 2.0 bill, right? Uh, that that is what you've that's, been calling on your radio. That's show. the that's official. Right. That's the official. No, I thought that was the official title. <laughs> right. Everything is literally Jim Crow nowadays. All right. So, uh, appropriating funds to establish a program to identify and assist voters needing photo ID. This is the mobile unit. They want to uh, throw about five million dollars at this idea, which I think is a good idea. And honestly, I think if this had been paired up with all of the voter ID. Uh, efforts in the past, I think there would have been a lot less resistance, although I'm saying that and I recognize that voter ID is a popular thing to begin with. But this, I mean, I think this alleviates like the primary concern. It it does alleviate one of them. I I agree. And and look, it wasn't you know, I, I went and got a free ID um, just to see what it was like in the what, like three weeks where we actually had it on the on the on the books in North <laughs> Carolina. So you could get a free ID before, um, but. Yeah, look, this makes it better. It, it makes an appropriation for it. Um, you know, my take on the voter ID thing is, yeah, if if the initial bill hadn't been the monster bill, if it had actually just been a bill that mostly did voter ID and not much else, we'd still have voter ID in the state of North Carolina. I think it's that it had 22 provisions and went too far in some other ways. Um, so I think a more narrowly focused voter ID bill would probably be law in the state of North Carolina. And I do agree with you. This would have helped. I also think it's great from a data collection standpoint, which you're all about the data collection. So mm-hmm. you're, we're going to actually know how many people did not have an ID and were unable to get one. 
right? Like That's how many, yeah, how many trips did this mobile unit make out to people's homes? How many did it issue? What was the total cost? And we're going to have some really concrete numbers, I think, which will be helpful. That's exactly right. And we'll know things about the voters. We'll know about voters' race. We'll know about all, all sorts of different things about them that we can collect. And so, yeah, these questions that are empirical questions. Mm-hmm. Does, does this harm certain races more than others or certain genders more than others or people of certain socioeconomic classes? We can know the answer to this question. So, sure, I'll, more data, I'm always happier. Which you kind of reference in this post um when you're talking about the next two components here, which has to do with the absentee ballots, uh, the deadline for requesting them and for counting them. And Mm -hmm. uh, you make a point here about the lack of information. So I'll let you kind of, I don't know, you want, is this a soapbox moment for you to, to complain about (laughs) the, the, the data that I guess is not, is not collected by the state board of elections. Yeah, no, I'll be happy to soapbox on that. Um, and this is, I, I think, in some ways should be a, a bipartisan um, uh, soapbox. That So essentially when the Board of Elections collects data, uh, when you go to register to vote, so you say, okay, I'm Pete Callender. I've moved here from Charlotte to Buncombe, from Mecklenburg County to Buncombe County, and I was born in whatever year Pete was born in, and uh, I'm this race, and I'm, I'm all these other, you know, I'm, I'm male and whatever else about you. The State Board of Elections collects that information. They report it. So that way, when there's voting rights cases or where there's dorky political scientists who want to figure out the impact of certain laws, they can figure out what the differential impact is on people of certain races, genders, ages, and so on. Well, it appears that the state board was doing a great job collecting those data for a while, but they created a new system, this new online system that for some reason didn't have those questions about race and age (laughs) and gender and where you were born and all these data that we love to crunch and use and that actually are really useful. They're just not there. Like if you go to the State Board of Elections website, click over to their online registration form, it'll kick you over to the DMV, and then you start clicking through, they're not going to ask you these questions. So what happens is basically anybody who registered using that online system over the course of the last year we just don't know those pieces of information about them. So I think it's a, I think it's a problem. So that's why in your data sample here that you compared 2016 and 2018, the ballots and such, I saw there was a spike in the undesignated column. And that's that's right. That's what that's from. It is. And so okay. and I'll, um, I'll be honest, I'll almost always be honest with you, Pete. The, the <laughs> first time I started playing with these data, I saw I did it on gender first. And I saw this huge undesignated pop. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is people who don't want to say that they're male or female. Right. This is this, uh, this sort of transgender rights movement that we're seeing in North Carolina elections data. And after about an hour playing with the data, thought, well, maybe I'll check it on other areas. And I realized pretty quickly, this isn't people making a political statement. This is people not getting asked a question. All right. So this makes it a little bit more difficult to kind of ascertain the impacts then of what you looked at, which was what if the Senate Bill 326 was in place during the last two presidential elections, right? So kind of, uh, and so the the key component here is explain uh, the 326, the deadline component, and then what you found. Right. So uh, 326, it's actually a pretty simple bill, and we'll contrast it with this Democratic bill in a minute, which is not simple by any stretch. (laughs) But this one, um, it says that if you want to request an absentee ballot, 
instead of doing it from the Tuesday before the election, you had to do it the second Tuesday before the election. So so it makes you get in that request sooner. Um, and it also wants to make sure that if it is postmarked, that we only accept ballots that are postmarked on the day of the election um, and, excuse me, and received on the day of the election. And there's this other caveat, unless you're uniformed and military folks overseas. So we have this big footmark, uh, footnote on military folks overseas, kind of leave that aside for a second. But right now they will count a ballot that is received up to three days after the election as long as it is, it is postmarked by election day. This says uh-uh, you got to get it in by five o'clock on election night or else we're not counting that sucker. Right. So that's the new 326 rule to take it from a postmark of election day now becomes must be received by 5 p.m. election day or it doesn't count for, again, non-uniformed voters. Um, I was kind of surprised to learn that this change and I don't remember it happening, which really surprised me, but this change occurred in 09. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's I mean, it's okay. It's 11 years old, I guess, uh, 12 years old, Um, but it hasn't been the case for very long. And prior to that, it was uh, you had to get it in, I think, was it like the Saturday before or the Monday before the election. And it was like that for like 40 years or something. And so the, the they have changed these rules before. That's my only point is that they, they have messed around with these deadlines before. And um, what I think 30, 31 other states, they already use this standard of you got to mm-hmm. have it in by election day. And I guess for me, the fundamental question is, does is there a benefit uh, for the society in having election night finish and us having an idea of who won. Is that mm-hmm. is that a preferred course? If it's not, then then you know, okay, well let's have that debate, but I I would submit I think it is probably better that we all recognize okay, election day is here, it's done and we all kind of know who won at this point. Mhm. Mhm. Uh, yeah, look, is it better? Yes. Is it a reason to have a rule in place? I, I'm not entirely sure that it is, um, particularly when there's less and less emphasis on Election Day voting anyway. Election Day voting was the third most popular way to vote in the state of North Carolina in 2020. I mean, this is which is which makes the Democrats arguing for Election Day holiday kind of an interesting little footnote as well. Um, but I don't know. Is that an overriding reason? Obviously, the Republican Party has claimed that it is and that that is a, a net positive. It's a benefit and it's enough of a benefit to not count these very few ballots that come in late. Um, I kind of leave it up to the listeners to decide mm-hmm. if that's a, a good reason to put in this deadline or not. But you're absolutely right, Pete, that about most things, actually. Right. You can just stop um, but, right there. Uh, just stop right one- there. <laughs> <laughs> One of those being uh, this: is, Moses did not hand down these dates and stone tablets. We changed them a whole lot. Matter of fact, most of our voting rules we've changed since Bush v. Gore. No, before Bush v. Gore, nobody paid attention much to much of any of these kinds of rules about how ballots were designed or when things came in. It was only after the disaster of Bush v. Gore that we started to pay more attention. So, yeah, a lot of these changes are really recent. All right, more with Dr. Chris Cooper in a minute. First, if you are looking for a home to buy or to sell your existing home, there's really only one number that you need to know. It's 333-4483. The name is Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team that she has assembled. These really are like the top sellers, okay? She outsells 99% of the realtors in the entire state of North Carolina. She built this whole program from the ground up. And what does it mean? It means that you get your house sold fast and for more money. 
It means that if you're trying to buy, she has homes in all price points. Go to her website, mountainhomehunt.com, buying or selling one number, 333-4043. The only agent that I called when Christy and I started uh, our home hunt was Rowena Patton. You should too. 333-4483. She's also the official Homes for Heroes real estate agent in Asheville, the only one. It's a national program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from the realtor commissions. This goes to police officers, firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, and members of the military, veterans, active duty, and retirees. She's given back like $800,000 so far to those uh, local folks. Give her a call, 333-4483, and then start packing. The argument, as I understand it, and here's the here's the uh, I think the 2020 did change a lot of the perception on mm-hmm. this is because there was such a flood because of the pandemic. There was such a flood of these absentee by mail and just straight up mail in voting. Um, and then, the you know, the addition of the drop boxes, all of the lawsuits. And you couple all of that with a breakdown in trust in institutions, including media, but also elections. And, uh, you know, look, election fraud has been going on since they, you know, built a first ballot box, right? So like this idea that it doesn't happen, now how much in dispute, but it, but it happens. And so you couple all of those things together and then you add in uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> so mm-hmm. just, you know, stir it all together. You have a lot of people, a lot of Republican, a lot of Trump voters that, they they came away from 2020 convinced that um, that the election was not fair, that it was, quote, rigged right in some way mm-hmm. to some degree. And it undermined their confidence. Now, I could also rewind a couple of years. I mean, look at Stacey Abrams down in Georgia. She spent the last three years running around saying she actually won. She's like the, you know, the shadow governor or something <laughs> in, uh, mm-hmm. in exile. So like and, and go back to Bush v. Gore. Right. What was it? The uh, mm-hmm. the Diebold machines. Right. That mm-hmm. gave Bush the victory in all of this. The Supreme Court in 2000. So or I guess it would have been. Bush v. Kerry in 04 was the Diebold machines. So there's always been this sort of sentiment that's out there, but you couple it with the lack of trust in the institutions and then add in Donald Trump. And I think um, I think this does now, I, I think there is some bit of urgency to this idea now versus pre-2020. Yeah, I mean, so we moved from in 2016, about four and a half percent of our votes were done by mail and it was almost, it was like over 19% in 2020. So we went in North Carolina. So we went up about fivefold. So this was a massive increase. Um, and I think you're right. I think it's about declining faith in institutions, particularly amongst Republican voters. Mm-hmm. And you combine that, and sort of the data would show that as far as survey data. And then you combine that with Trump, who said explicitly, don't use <laughs> vote by mail. I don't trust it. Right. Now, strategically, I would argue that was a big mistake. In 2016 in North Carolina, it was actually the Republicans, not the Democrats, who used vote by mail the more of the two parties. It was only in 2020 where we saw this, we'll dork out here, asymmetric movement, mm, where all of a sudden it was the Democrats and not the Republicans, right? They moved in opposite directions. Um, And I think that was a strategic error. Um, If your goal is to win elections, I I would argue that Donald Trump probably should have said, we'll take them however you can get them to us. Well, and the obvious reason for that is the pandemic when you've got, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this was this was part of the politicization of the uh, of the coronavirus response yep. as well, which was, uh, I think, you know, you had people on the left that were 
uh, thinking that you know every single person they encounter is going to kill them, and so they mm-hmm. they want everything remote, mail everything in. And then you got Republicans who are like, oh, it's just the flu, right? And uh, who cares? Yep. <laughs> right? And so like they're. The truth is like in between those two polars uh, and or those two poles, I should say. And and I don't know, I, like, uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think 2020 and the, the mail-in ballots, I'm, I'm not so sure that should be the standard going forward because it seems like mm-hmm. it was thrown together pretty slapdash. And now look at any effort. I mean, what did Georgia just try to do right now? They're trying to codify some of the stuff in there. You know, they're accused of being racist. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I don't know, like. Uh, do you think that these numbers stay stay at 2020 levels? No, without no, a pandemic, no, absolutely okay. not. I, you know, my guess is it'll, we're going to shoot the middle, right? It, it's going to be more than four and a half percent in the future. I think a lot of people realize that it's pretty easy um, that you don't have to encounter angry protesters on either side. Picture whoever you want to picture there, mm-hmm. um, and that it worked pretty well. Um, so. I think it's going to be up. I think it'll be up considerably. But will it be at one in every five votes? No, I don't think it'll be at that kind of level. I think we're going to return to something that is kind of somewhere in the middle. And just to review for folks, the early the early in-person, which the rest of the world calls early in-person, we call one-stop voting. So uh, stupid. Really esoteric reasons. Yeah. Um, that is the dominant way to vote in the state of North Carolina and has been for a number of years. The flip we saw in 2020 was that Election Day moved from the second most popular way to the third most popular way. Right. And that's I would submit that's COVID. That's the pandemic. Yes. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, because you got people that didn't want to early vote either because it's in person. So um, that's right. So now your analysis, though, you ran a yeah. simple simulation, which I, I took mm-hmm. as kind of a humble brag. You're like, I can do all of these simple <laughs> simulations. I <laughs> I have no idea what it, it's uh, all a humble brag. <laughs> that's <Pete. laughs> right. That's right. Uh, simple simulation of whose votes would not have been counted and whose yeah. votes would have been rejected in the past two general elections. And so I think you mentioned this, that, uh, but uh, just the, the top line on this is what, the, that it, it flipped basically in 16 and in 20? Yeah, so so exactly. And, and I know we'll get to the caveat here in a minute that I want to make sure we do hit. But yeah, so if you just look at the ballots that um, were outside of the time frame that would be acceptable in the new bill, um, it would have, uh, I mean, just in kind of the starkest partisan terms, it would have helped, uh, excuse me, would have hurt the Democrats in 2016, and it would have hurt the Republicans in 2020. And in neither year is it a huge number. I mean, it is thousands of votes, there's no doubt about that. Um, But as a proportion of the whole, it's fairly small. So it's fairly small, there is a partisan impact, the partisan impact flipped from 2016 to 2020. Which conveniently gives, I think, everybody in the argument some ammunition to use. That's very helpful. It does. Right. Very helpful for you it, to uh, provide it, it, that. I'm, I'm, I'm about the kumbaya moment. <laughs> You're a giver as well. Um, That's right. So, uh, all right, and so what is the caveat here? Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. I, and you did make a point of mentioning this in the post, so we should. Yeah, no, I think it's an important caveat um, that by saying I simulated what would have happened, I mean, I'm, I'm simulating this time frame. It is very possible that people will simply adjust their behaviors um, based on the new deadlines. Right. And uh, there was a fun little kind of Twitter uh, scrap up uh, where uh, a couple folks kind of jumped on me and said, hey, <laughs> you're a knucklehead, basically, that uh, your simulation doesn't take into account the fact that, uh, you know, people are just going to adjust their behaviors. And they're, of course, going to know what the deadlines are, respond earlier and 
and uh, and turn them in earlier. And there's no way I can know that. And my uh, my Twitter snarky response was, "You're exactly right," which is why I wrote that in my post. In the post, exactly right. It's a there's an assumption that there's no change in behavior, but obviously there would be some change. But how do you quantify that change? That's difficult to know until unless you've got some example of a state that changed their law precisely as we are proposing right so that, that's exactly right and after, look i think it's fair to assume um again it would probably shoot the middle it would it would some people adjust their behavior of course i also mm-hmm. think it's a little bit unrealistic to think that the average voter has any clue that this conversation is even happening yeah so certainly some are going to come in after the deadline there's no doubt about that the, the debate is over how many More with Dr. Cooper in a minute. First, it may seem like right now that everything costs more money. Everything's getting more expensive these days, right? But Mattress Man is actually giving you more bed for your buck. Kids outgrown their twin size bed? Get them a queen for the price of a twin. Maybe uh, you want to upgrade from a queen to a king? Well, you can get a king for the price of a queen. King for the price of a queen, queen for the price of a twin. It's basically a free upgrade. You're welcome. The exclusive retailer of the Biltmore Collection is Mattress Man. These are the beds that are in the Biltmore Hotel and Inn uh, at the Biltmore Estate, made by Restonic right here in North Carolina. You'll get free local five-star white glove delivery service and a 120-day comfort guarantee. They do ship nationwide. And remember, take advantage of any of their flexible financing options, like no interest for two years. They've got a great deal for uh, their tax refund deal where you basically get your mattress, get your bed now, and then pay for it when you get your refund. They will work with you. Sleep is so important. They want you to get a good night's sleep. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. They've got four local stores in Asheville and Hendersonville and Arden, uh, including their new location on Airport Road. It's the uh, it's in the IHOP Shopping Center there. Go check it out and tell them you heard it here on the show. I appreciate that. Go to their website. Check out the inventory and all the deals at mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. My guest is Dr. Chris Cooper. He's the Madison Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Public Affairs at Western Carolina University. And uh, he also writes at the Old North State Politics website. You can check that out. Um, so I, I think, though, that this is um, this gets to a point I made the other day on one of the shows, which was like at some point going over these these uh, these rules and the counter arguments that I heard from Democratic lawmakers against this. Like at some point. Don't you have to take responsibility for going to vote, <laughs> right? I mean, at some point, isn't it isn't it not too much to ask that somebody knows, like, hey, there's an election this year, you know? Like, just, just like, like, start from there. Hey, there's an election this year. I'm seeing all these ads. There's an election this year. And then, hey, I want to go vote, and so I should do something just one thing just something whether it's you know ask for a ballot or go to vote yourself like i don't know i just i think that you should have to do a thing that is uh i hate to use the word proactive but yet kind of proactive like you got to care to do something you do and and right it's where do we draw the line on how much you have to do how easy or hard should it have to be um and that is where these battle lines are drawn or have been drawn for years right I, i think you know we were talking maybe a year ago about the kind of long history of vote-by-mail arguments in the state of North Carolina, and they've been going on a long time, and here's how they tend to fall. 
the Republicans are saying, hey, but what about security? And the Democrats are saying, hey, but what about access? Mm -hmm. And I have a feeling in 20 years when I'm back on your show, hopefully, (laughs) we're going to be having the same argument. We're just not going to remember because it'll be 20 years. Right, exactly. We've done some things to our bodies. Right. Well, you'll be retired. I'm still going to have to be working because you're a professor. (laughs) So you'll you'll be out in a couple of years. Um, But uh, no, I do think, though, that um, who is it? Uh, Senator Paul Newton, I believe it was that Mm -hmm. I thought he captured it pretty well when he said, look, there's this tension, you know, free, fair and secure elections. And there is tension in those adjectives, right? Like because Mm -hmm. a totally free election would be just no rules, right? Just have everybody Mm -hmm. show up, vote however many times you want. Who cares? But that would not be secure. So, yeah, finding the balance. And what I bristle at is any attempt to find a balance that goes in one direction earns people the title of racist or Mm -hmm. suppressor or, you know, whatever. Um, Jim Crow 2.0, right? When you're just like, well, wait a minute. I just, I think we could probably do a little bit more on the security side of things. So anyway. Mm -hmm. um, It is a tension. And and I think it's a, it's, I think that's a fair point that the, and the tension is going to continue for a while. Yeah, where is that line? And I also think it's ironic in this case that both parties are doing the opposite of their normal playbook, right? So essentially you have Republicans saying, hey, why don't you throw some more regulation on this sucker? <laughs> the Democrats saying, let's just release the regulation a little bit. That's right. Uh, all right. So let's, um, let's talk about something your colleague wrote uh, about mm-hmm. the North Carolina 11th Congressional District. Michael Bitzer, Dr. Bitzer at uh, Catawba College and the the founder of the old North State Politics website, uh, he wrote about North Carolina's 11th Congressional District, which is weird because you normally write about North Carolina's mm-hmm. 11th Congressional. But I guess it's it's such a it's such a sexy, uh, interesting district. I guess uh, Dr. Bitzer wanted uh, wanted a taste of this. Um, That's right. Can you claim credit when you vote against the bill? And the answer he 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 offers is yes, yes you can, and I I completely agree. You absolutely mm-hmm. can. Now it'll earn you the accusation of being a hypocrite, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, and I this is the point I made on Twitter. I think you saw this. Like I don't think that that matters anymore. I really don't. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the charge of hypocrisy carries purchase any longer. People just accept that their team is going to engage in hypocrisy and the other team engages in hypocrisy. And the only point of calling it out of uh, f- uh, against your enemies, your opponents, it, it doesn't matter anymore. It used to because you're trying to get somebody to care. So they change their their uh, their tact, right? They change their behavior, but they don't. So <laughs> why even bother anymore? No, that's exactly right. At this point, I think what it does is it's a fundraising tool. Yeah. Right. It's a great fundraising tool. If you are a Democrat and you're running for the 11th Congressional District Office, what a great way to say, hey, look, this member of Congress is a hypocrite and a liar, and you should give me money so I can beat that person. Mm hmm. So he writes about David Mayhew's 1974 research called Congress, the Electoral Connection. So I'm assuming like you have this book. This is like uh, this is like required reading of all political science experts. I assume all professors have to have this copy and committed to memory. True. 
That's no, it's exactly right. Uh, with a boring title and everything, yeah. That's right. So I'm staring. I'm staring at the copy right now. It's blue and black. Okay. So and you know it's an academic book because you have to have a colon and then what it's really about, right? right. Congress colon the electoral connection. Right. So so yeah. So so David Mayhew um, is a Yale political scientist who wrote all sorts of really smart things about Congress. Um, this was smart at the time, although I think probably appears like pretty obvious at this point. He says, "Hey, look." I tell you what members of Congress are motivated by. They're motivated by election. He says they are single-minded seekers of re-election. And he says that if you sort of assume that everything is motivated by election, then you're going to be able to understand more about what members of Congress do than any other single assumption you can make. It's this really kind of economic argument. Mm -hmm. And um, and he says that one thing they do is they try to claim credit. He calls it credit claiming. And he says that, hey, it doesn't really matter that much um, if you really had anything to do with it, you're going to claim credit for that thing. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing with Madison Cawthorn here, right? So Madison Cawthorn did claim credit for something that he voted against. Um, the American Rescue Plan Act, or as I like to call it, the ARPA. And uh, this was the the trillions of dollars that uh, was going to go supposedly ostensibly for COVID relief. And then there's like a whole bunch of money that actually doesn't go for that. And some of it is going to his district. And so he sent out some tweets saying, hey, district people, we're getting some money. Yay us. And yeah. Democrats, I dare I say, pounced. They may have pounced a little bit. I know that's usually the Republicans mm -hmm. doing the pouncing or the seizing, but um, uh, they pounced on him. The North Carolina Democratic Party retweeted it, saying he's shamelessly taking credit for money for his district from the ARPA. And uh, oh, that's my acronym, not theirs. Um, and then, while, you know, while he voted against it. And this one's pretty mm -hmm. clear. Yeah, yes, he obviously voted against it and he's obviously celebrating it for the credit. Sure. But again... Mm -hmm. Who cares? Yeah. Right. And, and right. For the Democrats, it plays into this narrative about Madison Cawthorn, right? What? How do the Democrats want to portray Madison Cawthorn is, is a know-nothing, is somebody who doesn't know what's happening in Congress, doesn't understand the basic issues, and just didn't really understand what he was doing and is a little sleazy. And so it plays right into the narrative that they're trying to put out. And mm -hmm. Should Madison Cawthorn have bragged about this? And I don't know. Probably not. But I think as Michael talks about in the piece, it happens an awful lot. And so there's this new book um, that also has a colon in the title uh, – <laughs> By uh, by Francis, <laughs> Francis e. Lee. Lee, yes, at uh, and James Curry, all the limits of party, and I'll save you the 320 pages in the, in the 2995. The limits of party argues that that there are some limits to party, oh. and that you can actually get a lot done in the minority party. And that one thing you do is you claim credit for stuff that you didn't really do yourself. So, let me run this past you, and I don't know if you saw this on Twitter or not, but um. I look at this more uh, through the through the lens of the big spending bills that mm -hmm. I don't think he gets to do this if they run smaller uh, specialized bills rather than what they ran this thing to get it through reconciliation. Right. Mm -hmm. A massive omnibus spending bill where they pile everything in and he can legitimately argue that, yes, I voted against the entire package because it spent too much money. It didn't devote the, you know, the money to where I wanted it to go. Um, but uh, I did like some things that were in it and I would have voted for those things had they been standalone bills. So I look at it as like sort of a casualty and of the, of the, uh, the budgeting process and the way that they just throw everything in together. And, um, 
it's kind of been like a generally accepted, I don't know, maybe general uh, gentleman's agreement. Like, you're not supposed to claim credit for this stuff if, mm-hmm. you know, you vote against the omnibus. And it just seems to me like he's not playing by that rule anymore. Like, who cares? I'm going to claim credit because I did like some of the stuff in the bill and I would have voted for it had it come to me alone. Yeah, I, certainly I think that's possible. Um, and I think that kind of is his argument. I also think that a little like James Clyburn said, a uh, Democratic member from South Carolina, when talking about the um, defund the police, you know, they were just making the argument defund the police doesn't really mean defund the police. Right. And Clyburn said, if you have to explain your slogan, right. basically you got a problem, right? It's a pretty bad slogan. And so are you right, Pete? Yeah, probably that's what he's thinking. But if he's got to go to that level of explanation, I would argue it was a mistake. It happens a lot. It does not make him the only member of Congress who's going to claim credit for things that weren't his. But I would argue that one was was a political mistake on the part of Madison Cawthorn. And I think his, you know, Micah Bach, who's his um, aide, sort of put out a statement trying to argue this point. It was a lot to follow. Um, mm. So I wonder if he would maybe take that one back. I also think it's ironic that, if you know, what looks, what is one person's money to the district is, of course, another person's pork project. Always. And I think we need to remember that, right? This is a lot of money that came to a very specific geographic place. And so that's, you know, every member of Congress, every elected official gets caught in this um, little problem as well. And, and, and I think Cawthorn certainly did here. All right, more with Dr. Cooper in a moment. First, I am uh, checking over here real quick on the uh, oldgrouch.com website. He's got a USGI duffel bag for 20 bucks. That is in stock and sweet. He's also got real U.S. military canteen cup stoves and a limited edition survival kit set shoulder bag version. So go to oldgrouch.com or go to the store in downtown Clyde. Old Grouch is located on Main Street, where he's been for 30 years, selling real U.S. military surplus. Well, Tim's dad set it up, and when he passed away, Tim took over the family business. And you can get real U.S. military surplus at great prices, uh, and uh, he can help you put together kits for uh, you know backpacking. If you are the outdoorsy type, you should have a first aid kit to take with you out on the trails and such. Um, or maybe you're a prepper, you need a go bag set up, he can help you with that as well. Go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Uh, again, downtown Clyde on Main Street. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun, and 24-7 at the website oldgrouch.com. And remember to tell them that you heard it here on the show. Talking with Dr. Chris Cooper, he is the Madison Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Public Affairs at Western Carolina University. Um, All right, so let's talk a little bit about Madison Cawthorn's potential challengers, because it's never too late or too early to talk about the next election. So um, what? Is, so we've already got people that have declared their candidacy. Uh, Jasmine Beach Ferrara, uh, I don't think I've spoken with you since she declared. Um, I, th- I thought it was kind of, um, okay, I'll just say, it. I thought it was kind of comical that her, it was a well-produced ad that she put out. I thought it was very well mm-hmm. done. But when she starts off by saying like, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that a gay minister couldn't get elected in North Carolina or something like that. Like, I don't know anybody that thought that couldn't happen in a district in Buncombe. <laughs> right. right. So <laughs> I don't know, but I understand the point she's going for there. Like, look sure. at me, you know, sure. all I can break through and I could be a crossover candidate for all these, you know, racist backwater people that are voting Republican. I but I don't think so. <laughs> right. 
I mean, yeah, she is from Buncombe County. It is a, in a very specific district. And right. Yeah, I, so I don't know that it worked. I also wonder who the audience was for that, right? So she just put out her fundraising numbers and uh, right in front of me, but somewhere in the ballpark of $350,000, yep. I believe she's yep. raised, give or take, yeah. a little bit less than $400,000. Um, something tells me that's who this was aimed at. All the people that have been reading the Madison Cawthorn, the, every national media story that takes fire at Cawthorn for whatever less than brilliant thing he said the day before, and those people want to give money to somebody, those people are activated, that's who she was aiming after. Not people who know the difference between Murphy and Bryson City, but the ones who couldn't find either one on a map. Right. No, I, yeah, I agree. I, I, I think her candidacy, because we've talked before about just the makeup of that district, unless, of course, the whole thing gets blown up in redistricting or something, um, I, I don't know. But uh, even then, I'm not sure how you draw it to to, to make sure that a Democrat has a chance to win it because there are a lot of Republican voters around the, around Asheville, um, out, you know, outside of Asheville. But, um, I think it was, I think you're right, directed mainly at fundraising and in, increasing her, uh, her name ID or political profile for a run for something else. I don't know what that might be, but I think that's the point. Cause as I mentioned, she's just a district county commissioner in a district that is Asheville, right? Like that's what got her elected. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty niche, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that she, uh, she can, she can break beyond that. So maybe this is a play to like, is sort of like a stray voltage where you, you know, the energy is out there. Let's just direct it here and send it to my campaign coffers because if not me, who else? <laughs> Could be. And, and it, you know, if, if you are a Democrat and you want to win in this district, that's probably the right strategy. Right. I mean, this is let's pick your your strain metaphor. Right. It's a heavy lift. It's an uphill battle. It is, uh, you know, pick pick whichever one you want. It's going to be tough for a Democrat in a district that was 55 percent Trump in the last election. And we can talk about redistricting, too, if you want. But uh, so if you're going to win, how do you do it? You raise scads of money. You make it a nationalized election. You run up the table in Buncombe County. You pull what northern Henderson, probably southern Madison. You pull Jackson and maybe somehow you get Swain back. And if you can pull that, you know, that that straight, then maybe perhaps you have a shot. And so part of that is raising scads of money. And I think tweets comparing your opponents to nazis is helpful i think it is helpful <laughs> and it is also interesting again there's a primary still to go which is what i i think is the other interesting thing right so rhetorically she's playing this really smart she's saying i'm running against madison cawthorn there was even a little like daily cost put out a tweet that said madison cawthorn opponent raises mm -hmm. whatever three hundred fifty three hundred sixty thousand dollars well, technically, she's Josh Remillard's opponent right. at the moment and perhaps going to be the opponent of other Democrats running. And as Madison Cawthorn can certainly tell you firsthand, um, the primary is uh, – or Linda Bennett – the right. primary is no gimme in the 11th, and we need to have that conversation before – we have the general election conversation. Yeah, so Josh Remillard, uh, Iraq War veteran, 38 years old. I did think it's interesting, though, he was described in one of the pieces I read on him uh, as a proponent of the expansion of Medicaid in North Carolina. He wants to increase teacher pay, and he wants to reduce North Carolina's reliance on fossil fuel. And I almost wondered, like, are, did you mistakenly like run for the congressional house, and you're right. actually wanting to run for the state house? Because these seem like 
more kind of like state issues to me. Well, and he did, right? He ran for the General Assembly um, in the last election. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think much of the coverage um, around him is still focused on the positions he put out at that point. So yeah. that is exactly what was happening. Um, and I think as a footnote, but maybe an important one for folks who are listening, um, right, there's a reason that everybody's uh, declaring right now for Congress and not for the General Assembly. And the reason is you can live out of district and represent another district in Congress, you have to live in your home district for the General Assembly. So we're going to see this big push right now, folks running for Congress. Then once the lines are clear, we're going to start to see folks run for the General Assembly. It's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, because we don't even know. Um, we Well, we do know we're getting a 14th seat, right? We do know that? Right. Okay. Yes. Um, do we know who we're taking it from? I would very much like to take it from New York. That would be just... Which- <laughs> I mean, pick your least favorite Rust Belt state and pretend we're taking it from them, right? <laughs> well, you know, given my ancestral roots, I would just think, right. like, you know, it would be the Pete seat. I would just, like, that would be my seat. It finally followed me down here after 30 years or so. Um, well, but... we'd have to have a stop over in Florida first. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I never did Florida. Don't I even Do not even throw me into didn't. the halfback category. Um, I know. So the, uh, which actually, you know, where, where are you from? I think I, I don't think I've ever asked you this. Are you from Florida? Uh, no, 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 no. I spent as little time in that state as possible, Pete. I was born in South Carolina, and then I moved to uh, Virginia, then back to South Carolina, then to Tennessee, then to North Carolina. So if it is an adjacent state, I've tried to live there. You've tried. You got to yeah, foot in all of the states around here. Um, so we should also mention that the rumor is out there also that Madison Cawthorn might actually be uh, pulling a challenger as well in the Republican primary. The name that has been floated repeatedly is Chuck Edwards, the state senator, who's actually I've seen he's now been front man on several of these high profile bills. He did um, some of the line of questioning against the Board of Elections director, Karen Brinson Bell, and that got some coverage. So he he seems to be taking more of a public posture now. Mm-hmm. That's, that, yeah, that's right. And so that is the big question mark in the 11th, I think, is the primary, right? Just like the primary was the ultimate driver in the last election. Remember, if you're paying attention to other things, you'll live somewhere else. Madison Cawthorn lost before he won. Uh, Madison Cawthorn lost the initial primary to Linda Bennett, took the second primary for him to finally pull this out, the runoff, as they call it, in the rest of the known world. Um, and so the primary is going to be really interesting here. The rumor is Chuck Edwards, as you mentioned, fairly powerful North Carolina state senator who has a lot of power but hasn't really been um, – you know, he's not the kind of guy who's in the media all the time, right? And so he's taken much more of a, a kind of public-facing stance. And so if you buy the North Carolina politics rumor mill, then this is because Edwards just wants to make a play for Cawthorn. He also came out and had some pretty critical things to say about Cawthorn um, after January 6th, uh, sort of surprisingly so, a lot of folks thought. Yeah. Uh, also, the uh, former sheriff of Henderson County, Irwin. Sure. Uh, he, his name, I think, has also been floated uh, as well. And I think that's it. I'm not sure if there are others, but uh, we still have a long way to go. I know people are like, God, Pete, why are you talking about 2022 already? But the election season has started, right? I mean, it's already underway sure. as much as we're, we may not like it. Um, we're not going to see ads for a while, but it's already underway. Sure. Again, I mean, uh, Jasmine Beach Forest raised 
what, $350,000. And so what, like half that, you know, cost of your average house in, in the city of Asheville already has been raised for this election coming up in 22 and half the half the house price that's right <laughs> all righty uh is there anything else that you'd like to add that you think is important or interesting that we haven't already covered i know i kept you a long time here but yeah. uh no you um you're good at cutting this stuff out pete uh so, no I, I mean i think you you kind of mentioned offhand um the the redistricting piece of what might happen to the 11th yeah so it is worth i think thinking through it is we are going to see changes, right? We're going to see 14th Congressional District in the state of North Carolina. That is going to have a ripple effect on every district in the state. So we have to have about the same number of folks in every one of these districts. It is hard to imagine an 11th Congressional District that looks favorable for the Democrats. It could be more favorable, slightly. Uh, it is almost impossible to imagine one that would lean heavily Democratic, even if you were to pull in Boone in Watauga County, um, which I've seen you tweet about some kind That's of such the, a joke. You know, how crazy that would be. That's so stupid. He, the, even that doesn't do it. Right. Right. So if you run simple simulations and you pull in <laughs> <laughs> Watauga County and then you take away some of the other eastern counties, you still don't get to a majority Democratic uh, Democratic voting district. So this is probably this is going to lean Republican no matter what happens in the redistricting battle. It does matter how much, as we've seen, um, but this is not going to be a bright blue district. Yeah. Well, and also candidates matter, right? I mean, I always I yeah. always preach this. The yeah. candidates do matter. And if you have a district where you have a truly awful candidate and uh, it suppresses their base, their turnout, uh, you know, people may be willing to. I mean, it's sort of like the what I mean, was it? The uh, what was the guy's name? Doug Jones. Right. Down in right. Alabama. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. He's still there in the Senate. Um, and, and so, like, the candidates do matter. If you have a truly awful candidate, <laughs> then, uh, yeah, you might, not, you might not win that race, even if the district is drawn uh, pretty favorably for you. Of course, sometimes they draw them so, so favorably that the candidates don't matter, but they do for the most right. part, I think. Yeah, I always tell people, think about it like a tug of war. Somebody's starting, uh, you know, with a little bit of an advantage, but it still does matter if you've got, you know, The Rock versus, you know, Chris Cooper. <laughs> That's right. All right. Dr. Chris Cooper from Western Carolina. Always a pleasure, sir. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoyed it. All right. And uh, spring is sprung. It is fully in spring mode it's fully sprung anyway it's here okay and that means everything is growing like crazy and maybe your yard equipment is not up to the task to do battle in which case then you need to head on over to general equipment rental they've got the right weaponry aka tools to help you do battle against the vegetation that is encroaching upon your homestead. Uh, or if you are a contractor of some kind and you do projects and maybe you got a contract for a deal, you got a job, and you don't have the right tool for that and you don't know what to do, go to General Equipment Rental. They'll work with you and uh, they get you the right tool for the job. They'll show you how to use it as well. Uh, and then you just bring it back to them. So you don't have to, you know, you don't have to go buy the tool for a once a year type of a project. It's not worth it. Just rent it, get the job done get your pay and go home go on to the next job also if you are a landscaper you work out with the uh with the stand-on mowers and you need to replace one general equipment rental has a fantastic deal it's actually two deals that they've combined because they are specialists for Husqvarna right they are your official licensed Husqvarna outdoor power equipment sales and service provider and that means they know about all these different deals and they know which ones work with each other. And this one will get you these two deals 
together will get you $3,500 off of the stand-on mowers, the V548 and V554. So head on over to General Equipment Rental or go to their website, generalrents.com. You can see the deal details there uh, or go in and talk with them. General Equipment Rental, they are in Weaverville at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road, family owned and operated for three generations now. Generalrents.com, General Equipment Rental, and think outside your toolbox. All right, so I mentioned a moment ago there about the shadow government. This was kind of comical. I thought that uh, the North Carolina Democrats in the legislature, they have created <laughs> shadow titles for themselves. <laughs> People are not really clear on why exactly they have done this. But uh, here's the story, WRAL, by Travis Fain and Matthew Burns. Taking a page from the British parliamentary system, Democrats in the North Carolina House have added shadow titles to their job descriptions. So there's now a shadow education chair, a shadow transportation chair, and a number of shadow appropriations chairs. In fact, there's a shadow chair, and in many cases, a shadow vice chair for just about every committee in the House that handles legislation on a given topic. The idea is that members of the minority party will be subject matter experts as the legislative session chugs along. Such shadow titles are common in parliamentary systems perhaps most notably in the UK Parliament, where the shadow cabinet of politicians from the minority party is routinely quoted in the press. Okay, the purpose of a shadow government in a parliamentary system, though, is, as I understand it, because I don't live in one, is that the parliamentary systems are volatile, right? They, like, at the drop of a hat, they call a new election. Right. And they form a new government. Coalitions are broken and made and whatever. Lots of shifts. And so at the drop of a hat, you could be the minority party one day and then boom, you're the majority party. So it makes sense to be ready to govern on day one. But see, we don't have that. We have elections regularly <laughs> scheduled. So we would know if you're going to be the chair in the event that you and your party win a majority in the General Assembly. Now, what apparently has happened is that there's some new comms people over there, and this is just some sort of, like, puffery. Stephen Wiley, who was the House Republican caucus director, we've had him on the program before, he said House Democrats are trying to clumsily shoehorn in parliamentary terms to make themselves sound more impressive. Many of their members are already real chairs and vice chairs of real committees, rather than made-up chairs in a parallel universe. That is a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, remember, subscribe to the podcast and uh, don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>